guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. The sun is shining. Things are great. Wow. Is that all that takes on your list? Is it sunshining? Because I got a list and sunshining is like number five. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it goes beautiful a long today. way. Yes. It goes a long way. I feel like to boost your morale when it does. it's shining. So yeah. Yeah. I'm great. Today. It does. <laughs> it's fighting. No, fighting the sunlight, fighting the moonlight. I think that's about being old. Whatever that one is. It's like, don't fight. I don't know. Why am I talking about this? Can't fight but the yes, moonlight. I like agree. that Leanne Rhymes song. <laughs> oh gosh. Now I'm quoting Leanne Rhymes. <laughs> Isn't that from Coyote Ugly? You're 100% right. Yes, I'm quoting Leanne Rhymes when trying to. I think I was trying to quote Cloris Leachman. That's how far off I am. Why Why do you allow me to talk? We should just have an edit and it should just be me saying, good, how are you? And then that's it. Just yeah. insert it in every week. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I just feel like there's not really a lot to report on these days. January, like I said, is so boring. I think I said that last week, and I can't believe we're still in January um, this I week. Know. And it just seems like it never ends. But um, it is ending. It will be over by the time this episode comes out. It will not be January anymore. So I guess things are happening. Time is moving. Yes, the calendar <laughs> is moving. <laughs> Clocks are still going. Yeah. All right. So before we get into it, um, just one more quick reminder. Um, if you did have a ticket for our live show that was supposed to be in Chicago on February the 4th, that's this week. Um, and you found out last week that the show was going to be canceled. Once again, we are very, very sorry about that. Um, and we felt really bad. So we are doing a live show uh, virtually. And Melissa has set up a wonderful email called momsliveshowcurse at gmail.com. And that is for those of you who had a ticket um, that you already purchased to the Chicago live show. And you are interested in now watching us do this live show on the internet. Is that how you say that? Yes, we're doing it on the internet. Um, yes. So yes. Yeah, <laughs> Al Gore so we, <laughs> created it for us. <laughs> yeah. So this will be actually a show, like a an actual case that we're going to discuss, and then we will have it open for, we'll open it up for um, discussion so we can interact with you guys and everything um, throughout and afterwards. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. So we are going to do that on uh, February 4th, which I believe is Thursday. Yes. And uh, that will be at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you didn't replace your plans to see us with other plans, then you can still see us. Um, you can ask for the link to that by emailing momsliveshowcurse at gmail.com and we will send that right over. So we hope um, that if you want to watch that, you will join us. And absolutely. Yeah, we'll we only see have how that like goes. 10, 10, 15 people, something like that. So if you do send a copy of your ticket that way, we're just trying to make sure we get it to people who were already planning on going to the show. We might do something later with everyone at another date, but just we feel so terrible that we want to make sure we give you guys um, a show that day that's just for you. And then we'll go from there on what we'll do in the future. I can't think about the future. I can't even think about February. This is too much. Well, speaking of February, Melissa, and the future, we also have some other exciting news. And I'm going to let you go ahead and share it, Melissa, because this is really your exciting news to share. Oh, okay. Um, well, February 12th, I am, I've been working actually since last summer, but this is how slow my brain works. Um, on a true crime, but not really true crime, it's mostly pop culture reality show combination called Criminality. Criminal and reality. Get it? It's, it's like perfect. I love it. Yeah. It's similar <laughs> to Moms and Murder where I was like, I got a name and now I've got to do everything else. Um, so I'm working with Rebecca from Dialogue Podcast. And if you've listened to Dialogue, Mandy and I were interviewed by her and she's great, really nice, uh, big pop culture person and a uh, big Real Housewives fan. So we are working on that. And that show will debut on February the 12th. And I'll put a link in here and, and we'll play a promo this week. So we'd love you to check it out. We're, Moms and Murder is still a thing. We're still doing this every week. Um, this is just a way for me to get in my pop culture references and not talk about murder and try to fit in a pop culture reference. Sometimes that can be very difficult. So I want to be respectful, um, but that will be every other week. So nothing changes here. Mandy and I are still going on and we're working on some other stuff for Patreon for Moms of Murder. And we've got ideas. We've got ideas. We always have ideas. It's just, it's a thing. Melissa we, we, is very, very out. friendly, but we all know the real reason is that she was tired of me just not getting any of her references. <laughs> so she had to go and find a new outlet where people will understand her because it is not here. 
uh, no, that's not true. But it, I mean, you know, every once in a while, it's nice to have a live, a live reaction. Cause I'm like, <laughs> is this joke going over? Well, I just don't know. So people for moms of murder will email and be like, I thought it was funny when you said, I'm like, thank you so much. Thank you. I just, <laughs> so anyway, it'll be, it'll be fun. It'll be uh, lighter uh, and more pop culture. And Mandy and I have talked about this before. We talk about murder all the time. Sometimes that gets to be a lot. And so it's a nice, it's a nice outlet. I figured out that this is my outlet and not my kids. Maybe being a parent more often and dealing with my children should be more of an outlet, <laughs> but that's not as fun. So, <laughs> well, yeah, so I'm Just very kidding. excited. Yeah. I'm really excited Yay. to check it out and listen. And hopefully our listeners will go check that out as well on February 12th. But yes, I have not heard anything yet. Um, Melissa has not sent me her first episode, so I haven't even checked it out just yet. Just got I'm, it. I just yes. edited it this morning. <laughs> I am super excited to hear it. So yes, I am very excited about that and so excited for you. Thank you. Excited, excited, excited. Yes, I feel like Jesse I said Spano excited and, <laughs> numerous times. by the bell. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> I'm excited times five right now. Okay. There you go. <laughs> All right, so this week's episode is a little bit different than our usual because we actually have two different stories this week that both happened a long way from here in the United States. Uh, They happened all the way across the world in New Zealand. And I'm not sure if we've ever talked about any New Zealand crimes, um, probably because there really aren't that many. In fact, in 2018, the Global Peace Index ranked New Zealand the safest country in the entire world, just behind Iceland, who was number one. The majority of crime in New Zealand actually revolves around people selling and using drugs with property crimes and thefts as a close second. Tourists are often the victims of petty crimes in New Zealand, but violent crime and especially the use of a weapon in a violent crime is virtually unheard of in this part of the world. So when horrific and violent crimes do happen, it's especially shocking. The first story that we have this week is about the rarest of all crimes in New Zealand, and that is completely random acts of violence. Going through a divorce can be one of the most stressful things a person ever goes through. There are numerous stories about nightmare divorce drama, and many of us have either been through it or know somebody who's been through it. So it's easy to sympathize with those who are in that situation. I read some divorce stories that people shared online, and it's safe to say that there's almost nothing some people won't do to get back at each other. In one woman's story, her ex-husband continued to control the house's thermostat remotely for an entire year just to mess with her. And in another story, a man paid his ex-wife her alimony in coins so that she would have to count it all by hand. But in the case of Susan and Menzies Hallett, the drama was much more than just a petty jab at one another. In the very early morning hours of August 16th, 1979, Susan Hallett was woken up by the sounds of someone outside her bedroom window calling her name. It took her a minute to come to, but as she started to wake up more, she realized that the person outside of her window was her soon-to-be ex-husband, Menzies Hallett. It was clear to Susan that Menzies was drunk, which shouldn't surprise her much considering she just delivered some bad news to him earlier on regarding their daughters just hours earlier. The marriage between them had been over for a couple of years, and they were in the midst of a custody battle over their two daughters, who at the time were 14 and 11 years old. The oldest daughter had been living with Susan while the younger one stayed with Menzies, but Susan had just given the news to him that he would not be getting custody of either of the girls and that they would both be living with Susan at her home in Wellington. At this time, Menzies was working as a real estate agent and living in the back of his parents' house while he renovated a house for himself across town. He and Susan had been split up for a while and Menzies was already dating a new woman named Margaret. On August 15th, Menzies visited a friend and they drank several drinks with vodka and gin while discussing Menzies' divorce and the custody arrangement with his daughters. And it was when he arrived home later that evening that he found this letter that Susan had written to him, letting him know that both of their kids would be living with her from now on. Reading this letter upset him greatly and he headed over to his girlfriend Margaret's house to talk with her about it over dinner where he continued to drink alcohol. His demeanor was not upbeat or uplifting. He seemed very depressed, but in an urgent sense, like he needed help that very night. Before he left Margaret's, he called his ex-wife Susan and told her that he was going to drive to Wellington to see her so they could sort this custody thing out in person. But Margaret was very concerned about his state of mind when he left. Right before he walked out the door, Menzies pointed at a vase that Margaret had in her home and asked if it was valuable to her. 
Before she could answer, he pulled a gun from his waistband and shot the vase. Menzies wasn't typically the doom and gloom type, and he had quite a personality. He grew up in a family that was well-respected in Taupo, New Zealand, and the mayor, Rick Cooper, described Menzies as being well-bred and said that his parents, Walter and Effie, were well-liked in the community. The parents even had a bay on the eastern shore of Lake Taupo named after them called Hallett's Bay. As an adult, Menzies was described as affable and outgoing, if not overly successful. He really had a way with words and this confident, eccentric personality, but he was known to get rowdy after too many drinks. He was known for always looking sharp and talking nicely, but a former real estate employer said that there was something creepy about Menzies. And another word that was used to describe him was unhinged, which these are obviously contrasting words to the other nice things that people were saying about him. So it's almost like he had kind of two sides to him. He worked hard and he was very successful as a businessman by the 1960s. And he worked in real estate, screen printing, finance, and more. In the mid-1960s, he married Susan and had two daughters who they raised in Palmerston North, where Menzies worked at his father's sporting goods store before Menzies and Susan moved to Talpa with their girls. But over the years, Menzies and Susan's relationship fell apart, and by the late 70s, their marriage was over. It was at this time that the couple's oldest daughter stayed with Susan, and the youngest went to stay with Menzies in the back of his parents' house. Now, Susan was disputing the custody arrangement and had sent a letter informing Menzies that both girls would be living with her. And it was just hours later that Menzies was tapping and shouting outside of Susan's bedroom window. When Susan woke up and saw that it was her ex-husband, she got up and let him inside to ask him what he wanted and what he was doing there in the middle of the night. At this point, we're talking about between 1.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning that he's showing up there. Yeah. So when Menzies got inside, the story unfolded in a very confusing and very terrifying way. Menzies, who was in a drunken panic, proceeded to tell Susan that he had just shot a man at a gas station because the man refused to open the store to sell him something. As we said, it's the middle of the night and poor Susan has just been jolted awake by Menzies shouting at her window, so she was in a pretty confused state. If my kid wakes me up in the middle of the night, I'm so, well, actually my husband's more disoriented than me, but I'm still pretty disoriented. So I can't imagine hearing shocking news when being awoken. Like if my kid's throwing up, I'm already like, what, how how did this happen? But to hear like, hey, I just killed somebody. That would be quite a shock to your system. And you have to think you're dreaming. I mean, there's just For sure. That's just crazy. So Menzies actually seemed just as disoriented and confused as Susan, and he asked her to turn on the radio so they could listen to the news to see if there were any reports of a shooting so that Menzies could see if he was dreaming or if he'd really shot someone. Oh, my gosh. So (laughs) he then showed Susan the gun that he allegedly used in this murder and told Susan that he wanted to shoot himself. Before he left Susan's house, he pleaded with her not to go to the police for the sake of their two daughters. And although Susan agreed to get him out of there, she called the police as soon as he left and reported what he had just told her. Unbeknownst to Susan, Menzies wasn't just drunk and acting foolishly. He was actually telling her the truth and he had just killed a man he'd never even met before named Rodney Tahu, an innocent gas station employee who was just trying to close up for the night and got caught in Menzies' rage. So the full story that Susan didn't know was that while Menzies was on his way to her house that night, he started having some car trouble. He heard some rattling while he was driving, so he pulled into a Shell service station to buy some oil for his car. But when he got there, he realized that he was just a few minutes too late and the store had just closed up for the night. Now, anyone who's ever worked in retail or in a store or around a register at all knows that this is a whole process and there's a whole protocol whenever you're closing up for the end of the night. So I have worked in retail and customer service, and I know for sure that once you close your register for the night, you can't just reopen it, you know, right. without significant accounting, you know, taking place once you've closed everything down. And same thing after you've, you know, locked the doors and set the alarm, there are certain steps that, you know, people, managers, and everybody goes through whenever you're closing up a business for the night. So you can't just say, sure, you know, I've already done all these things, but now I can go in and sell you something because you just can't. I mean, it would just take a lot of effort to do that. And that's just not how it works. You just cannot do that. So Menzies was already drunk and he was in a distressed state after learning this latest news in his custody battle. And when he was told that the store was closed for the night, he became very angry about this. 
It was only about three minutes past closing time, and he just refused to accept that Rodney would not go back in and sell him a quart of oil. Menzies uttered a racial slur at Rodney, which in turn led to Rodney becoming defensive, and he went to approach Menzies to confront him about it. At this point, Menzies pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and pointed it at Rodney, who immediately turned and yelled for help while he started to run for cover between the gas pumps. And this picturing this whole scene playing out some a shootout at a gas station. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's terrifying because there's so many things that can happen, not to mention that you're actually in the process of trying to harm a person, but all the other things that can happen too. it just made me like, oh, my gosh, I cannot imagine this poor man. So Menzies fired his gun, but he missed Rodney on the first shot, and he fired again and hit him in the shoulder. After Rodney was shot, he fell to the ground and yelled for help again, but there was really nobody around. Menzies then walked over and stood over Rodney and shot him again near the corner of his eye. He then got into his car and continued on to his ex-wife Susan's home in Wellington. Shortly after the shooting, a passing truck driver spotted Rodney lying unconscious in a pool of his own blood in the gas station parking lot. Rodney was taken to the hospital, where he died a few hours later, despite efforts to save his life. As we mentioned before, Menzies told Susan about this and asked her not to contact the police, saying it's for the sake of their kids, but Susan called the police anyway. Police knew that Menzies would be on his way home after he left Susan's place, so they had multiple officers set up and wait for him along his route home. At some point, Menzies spotted police and made a U-turn, so he was no longer heading towards his home. But police followed him for a long way down a back road. Menzies eventually came upon a roadblock and had to stop his car with police hot on his tail. He refused to come out of his vehicle, and so a standoff between himself and police ensued. At some point in the chaos, a shotgun that Menzies was holding discharged, shooting himself in the left shoulder and in the arm. But police didn't know if he intended to fire the gun at himself, at them, or if it was just an accident that it went off at this particular time. But either way, Menzies had just shot himself in the arm and he needed medical attention. So the armed defender squad approached Menzies' car and he was taken to a hospital for treatment for his gunshot wound. Once he was released, he was charged with murder and he stood before a judge two weeks later. Unfortunately, in a turn of events, at the time this case took place, spouses couldn't give evidence or testimony against each other legally. And Susan's testimony was really all they had against Menzies. So this is the late 70s. There's no surveillance camera. There's no you know cell phone records really to prove anything. All they have is that this ex-wife or this wife going through a custody battle with her husband is calling and claiming my ex-husband has killed somebody, you know, do something about it. So without Susan's testimony, all the other evidence in the case was really considered to be circumstantial. And in the end, there wasn't enough to charge Menzies with murder. Since there were no other suspects in the case, it was closed and it became a cold case. And we're going to get into what happened next after one quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. It may still be cool outside, but here in Florida, we're starting to feel the beginnings of spring in the air. And what better way to celebrate the start of a new season than with a FabFitFun box? No matter what, the holiday season is always so busy, but after that comes spring, and spring feels like the perfect time for me to relax and rejuvenate, and FabFitFun agrees with me, which is why their spring box is centered around the theme of grow forth and whatever that might mean for you and your life. I've received FabFitFun boxes every season for the past almost two years, and I'm still so excited every time one arrives. In this season's box, I was excited to see that Cocoa Floss Tropical Trio flavored dental floss was in the box. I got three fun flavors, which has made it super easy to convince my kids and myself to floss more often. My hair has definitely needed a reset, which is why I was so excited to choose Gloss Modern Clean Luxury Hair Mask as part of my spring box. After washing my hair, I put this sweet smelling mask in and I swear immediately after using the product, my hair actually felt better and gave my dull hair a beautiful shine. This has quickly become a part of my weekly routine and it leaves me wondering how I lived without it before FabFitFun introduced me to it. And as a FabFitFun member, I get early access to products like this, as well as early shipping, which makes my FabFitFun box something I get so excited about each and every season, including having over 20 female-founded brands to get excited about in the spring box. Order your spring box today. Sign up now so you can snag amazing products like the Gloss Modern Clean Luxury Hair Mask or Cocoa Floss when you customize. 
Use coupon code MOMS for $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. Order your spring box today. Sign up now so you can snag amazing products like the Gloss Modern Clean Luxury Hair Mask or Cocoa Floss when you customize. Use coupon code MOMS for $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. There's a reason bras aren't one size fits all. That's because we're all different. And Third Love believes in celebrating our differences. And they do just that with helping you find your perfect fit. Every Third Love bra is made with no slip straps, scratch-free bands, and even signature memory foam cups. 2021 is a great time to shine and focus on what makes you happy. And you can start making changes from the bottom, literally, with underwear and bras from Third Love. Third Love bras are so comfy because they're made to fit you, not the other way around. I love the options Third Love has for their customers, from modern stripes to lace that actually feel soft. Plus my favorite, the number one rated 24-7 classic t-shirt bra in so many more styles. You can check out all the exclusive styles at thirdlove.com. And if buying a bra online seems a little out of left field, I get it. But Third Love offers a Fit Finder quiz that I took and it took just a minute to go through and really helped me find my perfect fitting bra because the size I was wearing before was way off. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 20% off today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Menzies Hallett and how he had essentially gotten away with murdering a complete stranger in cold blood, um, all because of this technicality where his wife, Susan, her testimony in the case was really worthless because they were married and there was a law that prevented married couples from being able to kind of give evidence and testimony against each other. So after the case was closed, Susan was finally granted a divorce from Menzies. But the pain for the family of Rodney Tahu lived on. Rodney was Maori and grew up in New Zealand his whole life. Maori people are the indigenous Polynesian people of New Zealand who originally settled there in the 1300s. And they have their own distinct culture and even language that evolved differently from other Polynesian cultures. Rodney Tahu grew up in a large family with 11 siblings. He was close with his sisters and played more of a fatherly role to them after their father passed away. He really stepped up to help the family and became their rock and roll model. And he was all around a great guy. He was loving, funny, popular, and even played in a band with his brother called the Reverbs. There's nothing Rodney wouldn't do for the people he loved, and he was known for his huge heart. In addition to music, Rodney loved rugby, fishing, and hot rods, and he even bought himself a green Monaro 350 GTS, which in today's world would be worth over $50,000. And that car was really his pride and joy. But one thing he loved even more than the car was his family. Rodney had a wife, Hannah, and two sons that meant everything to him, and he worked hard to provide them with a good life. For four years, Rodney had worked at the Shell service station, and he was an exceptional employee who got along well with everybody that he worked with. Just after 1 a.m. on August 16th, Rodney was finishing up his shift and had already set the alarm, locked the doors, and was headed to his car when Menzies pulled up in a rage. Rodney's death was truly senseless, and it's so hard to imagine that Menzies was able to walk free just because his wife's testimony wasn't allowed to be heard in court. But his life was far from being the same ever again. After Susan divorced him, Menzies met and married another woman named Shona, but within a few years, they were also divorced. Menzies was no longer a well-liked guy, and he wasn't treated very well after the murder. Everyone in town knew that he had killed someone, but yet he just kept strolling around town like it never happened. When he would go to places like the yacht club he was a member of, people would ridicule him by standing up and saying things like, don't shoot, bang, bang, which made him very uncomfortable. And rightfully so. He was out free on murder. <laughs> so right. he was essentially outcasted from society in his local area, and he was forced to move away to another area where he started to go by the name John, and he changed careers to work in life insurance. He built this new life for himself with his new identity, and he even made friends, including his roommate, Warwick Nuns. One day back in the 80s, Warwick and Menzies, who at this time was going by John, were out fishing together, and out of nowhere, he just began confessing his crime to Warwick. Nobody in this new town knew anything about Menzies' past or about the murder, and it's not like he's going around telling everyone he meets, hey, by the way, committed a murder a few years back. Want to be friends? So Warwick was really stunned. 
but he didn't think this confession would change anything, so he didn't go to the police. So after the initial shock of learning this information had passed, Warwick returned to being regular old friends and roomies with Menzies, and he would later go on to be the best man in Menzies' second wedding, and that's that wedding that the marriage had only lasted a few years. Years passed, and Menzies married a third time, this time to a woman named Joan. Life went on, and it seemed like Menzies had really gotten away with cold-blooded murder. But in 2006, there was a revision to the law about spouses providing evidence against each other. And now, Menzies' ex-wife Susan was able to provide sworn testimony in the case. It still took four more years, but in 2010, the case was finally reopened. On December 4, 2011, Menzies was out shopping, completely unsuspecting, when police moved in to arrest him. At the time of his arrest, the case was the longest-running cold case that had ever resulted in an arrest in New Zealand. Wow. It had been over 30 years since Rodney Tahu was shot and killed, and when Menzies was finally arrested and interviewed, he played it very cool. His demeanor was easygoing, and he was confident. Following his arrest, Menzies did one media interview with the Dominion Post in which he said that he had no idea why he was arrested or why Rodney was shot. He kind of made himself out to be the victim and said that he was thrown into a police car and taken in for questioning and that he had a two hour battle with the police who were allegedly trying to get him to admit things and they were feeding him what he said was all sorts of misinformation. So when 30 years has passed between the time that something happened to the time that you're being interviewed by the police, I wouldn't know this, but I can only imagine that it was probably very easy for him to kind of detach himself from the situation because so much time had passed. And it's like you go on and live this other life to the point where he probably put it behind him, you know, as best as he could and moved on. So I imagine it wasn't very hard for him to sit there and be like, I have no idea what this is all about because there had been so much time, you know, that had passed in between. So it's it's not like he was nervous about it because this was so fresh and so new. You know, this has been a long time since this has happened. Um, So Menzies finally went to trial for this murder on April 23rd, 2013. Prosecutors allege that Menzies went off the deep end after receiving the letter from Susan regarding the custody of their daughters, and this sent him into a downward spiral, which was only made worse by his overconsumption of alcohol, and he was irrational and murdered Rodney, that was a complete stranger, in cold blood. Menzies' defense team said that while he did admit to pulling the trigger, Menzies did not mean to kill Rodney. The idea behind this was that hopefully the jury would hear this and go for a manslaughter conviction rather than murder. But then at the very end of the trial, Menzies backtracked and said that he actually wasn't the one to pull the trigger, which I read was actually a common tactic. I don't really know. I don't know why you would then switch to that after you've given a whole story because that changes everything. Like if you didn't pull the trigger, that obviously makes the whole case different. So that was kind of a kind of an interesting 180 they did there. So Susan was, of course, the main witness for the prosecution, but Menzies old roommate and friend Warwick also testified in the trial. But the jury felt that Menzies had a very weak case. And on May 1st, 2013, he was found guilty of murder after the jury deliberated for less than three hours. A couple of months later, Menzies was sentenced to life in prison. He showed absolutely no remorse and offered no apology to the Tahu family. In late 2019, after spending six years in prison, Menzies died after suffering from a medical event that he was being treated for at a hospital. It's so interesting to me that this one thing, just having this law change could, you know, finally get this conviction because sure they don't have, I I guess, a lot of other evidence, but you do have the guy in his car with a gun and, you know, he's shot himself now. He tells his wife, why would his wife even know that this, you know, as soon as I feel like you say like somebody died at a gas station and they go see somebody that's dead at a gas station. Right. What what do we think happened here? I don't really. Exactly. And how else would he know that? Exactly. Yeah. I don't really, I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm not the detective, but I feel like they could have gotten a little bit further with that with, even without her testimony. I don't know. That's just so bizarre to me that it's totally excluded. Like it just doesn't matter. Like why not let the jury decide, jury decide if it's, or, you know, if the jury decides if she seems credible or not, you know, it, it, that's a weird law. I'm glad they've changed it. You know, I don't know how often it comes up, but it definitely would have been important in this one. 
Definitely. And I feel like this case is interesting in the fact that you, even here in the United States, you don't hear a ton of cases like this where it really truly is a completely random murder that, um, you know, they really don't know each other or have anything to do with each other. And it's not even like these two were fighting or that they had some kind of altercation that led to this. It really was just Menzies was in a rage and was angry that he could not buy something at a gas station and decided to shoot the person working at the gas station. It was just so random. Um, and you just don't really hear about that a lot, but yeah, the fact that he was able to get away with it and live for 30 years as a free man, that's always so fascinating to me. Um, you know, it's always great whenever they're finally caught and they can, you know, have justice for the family, but it's got to also still be hard for them knowing that he moved away and, you know, made a new life for himself and was able to live as a free man for, you know, three decades afterwards. Right. And that everyone really knew this wasn't like a cold case where nobody has any idea. Everyone really thinks this guy did it and he's just living his life like normal. But it also has to make you think if you're Susan or even his daughters, quite frankly, that that he flew off in a rage, was coming to their house. He's already shot a vase take the gas station out of it. He could have very well done something to them. You know, he, if he's right, who's he mad at? He's mad at Susan. And so it's amazing that nothing ended up happening to her. I mean, that sounds terrible, but I'm surprised based on how rage induced this whole thing was and how random it seemed that, that nothing else happened that night. And that's the scary thing too, to think that if he hadn't, uh, you know, if he hadn't shot Rodney, like you said, what was his plan going over to Susan's that night? He obviously had the gun with him. He was very upset and very angry to the point that he even would, you know, shoot somebody that he didn't even know. So it does make you think like, what were his intentions going over to Susan's house? And I'm sure that's something that she thought about, you know, for many years afterwards. Um, yeah, definitely a very sad story. story. Very sad for the family of Rodney. So we do. Yeah. So we do have another case um, from New Zealand that we're going to go through um, before we end this episode. And just because that one was a little bit of a shorter story, but this one is also um, a little bit shorter, but it also happened in New Zealand. So we figured this would be a good episode to put it in. This might end up being a little bit longer of an episode, Um, but hey, it's two stories. It's It's two stories in one. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So the other New Zealand case we're talking about today is uh, an older case from the 90s. And this one still hasn't been resolved. And it's pretty confusing and a heartbreaking whodunit story. When Mandy told me about this one, I read through it and I was, even at the end, was like, I I don't know. So you'll have to tell us your thoughts on this story. So on the night of August 17th, 1995, a young woman named Angela Blackmore was found dead in her home by one of her roommates, Lori. Lori had just come home from work and everything appeared normal. The front door was locked just like it always was. But when he went inside, it was strangely quiet. The home was shared by multiple people, including Angela Blackmore and her son, Dylan. So there was usually some type of activity or movement going on in the home, but not this night. Lori made his way into the kitchen where he made the startling discovery that Angela had been stabbed to death. She was lying on the kitchen floor with dozens of stab wounds to the head, chest, abdomen, and limbs, and she had a gash on the back of her head. Lori immediately dialed 911 and ran to check on Angela's son, Dylan, who was sleeping in another room. Thankfully, the boy was completely unharmed and still sound asleep when police arrived. Investigators noted that there was no sign of forced entry into the home, and after learning that Angela was always very, very cautious and kept the doors locked, they believed that whoever killed her was likely someone that she knew and let in herself. Aside from a bloody size 10 boot print on the kitchen floor, there really wasn't any other forensic evidence to speak of. Police did find one fingerprint that they believe could belong to the killer, as well as a set of fingerprints in the house that didn't belong to anyone else who lived there. Mandy has a note in here, and I agree with it. How do they figure out this fingerprint thing? Like, how how long do fingerprints last on surfaces? I think that's the bigger question, right? How Yeah. How is this not somebody that lived here six years ago? How do you know that? I don't get it. Right. Or like I, you know, I have people that come to my house and, you know, even if they're not there for a long time, they still will, you know, you probably would find their fingerprints in my kitchen or in the bathroom or somewhere, but that doesn't mean that they did anything illegal or killed anybody. So I always wonder about that when they say like, oh, we found fingerprints that didn't belong to anyone inside the home. I'm like, well, that doesn't really mean anything because people yeah, invite others course. to their house all the time. So yeah, definitely would like to know how they narrow it down to determine like which fingerprints are suspicious and which ones seem like they are just from everyday, you know, everyday activity. Exactly. Yeah. 
So Angela did have defensive wounds on her hands, which indicated that she was trying to fight off the attack, but she was not sexually assaulted. Officers believe that her attacker would likely have blood on their clothes from the attack. It was thought that the murder weapon was a single-edged, heavy-bladed knife that was brought to the scene and then taken with the killer when they left, meaning this was a pre-planned killing and the attacker came prepared. Digging into Angela's background provided some insight into what may have led to her murder. She was born on January 31st, 1974, making her just 21 years old at the time she was killed. Her life had not been easy. When she was 12 years old, she was removed from her parents' care and placed in a foster home. And throughout her teen years, she was moved to multiple different foster homes and struggled with many of the issues that plague even teenagers who live in a stable environment. She turned to drugs and solicitation before she was 18 and spent many nights sleeping on the streets and making friends with people who were involved in some sketchy and illegal activity in the city. Angela was very bubbly and outgoing, but she was also naive and was sometimes taken advantage of. At the time of her death, she was actually illiterate, but she really wanted to learn how to read. In her late teens, Angela met William Blackmore, who was a bouncer at a strip club called The Crazy Horse. The club was owned by a well-known local crime figure, and of course, as a result, there was plenty of questionable activity associated with the club and those who worked there. William was super into motorcycles, and he was the one who had the connection to members of the Templars MC. So just a little side note here, I did kind of try to look into the Templars MC, and my knowledge is still very limited and maybe even naive. Um, I went, they have a website, first of all, and as of right now in 2021, which of course is many years after this story took place, um, you know, it appears that this is just a motorcycle club and there's retired law enforcement and retired military. And then, you know, of course, just those who have like-minded ideals. Um, and they say on their website that they promote and possess the highest moral and ethical values with uncompromised integrity, trust, and dedication. So I don't know if things were different within this (laughs) motorcycle club in the nineties, but, and of course they would never put on their website, like, Hey, by the way, we also are responsible for murders, but also um, meet us in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if I'm just being naive and I just don't know how motorcycle gangs work, which is also (laughs) very true. Um, but yeah, so maybe, maybe it was, maybe they, I don't know, maybe they broke down the bad part of it and now it is just a very upstanding gang. But anyway, it is still in, it does, it is still an operation, you know, an operative thing. Um, but I don't know how much it has changed since the 1990s. Um, So Angela and William started dating and Angela quickly got pregnant. They got married in March of 1993, but it really was not an ideal marriage. They fought a lot and they were both guilty of verbally abusing each other. But as far as we know, there are no documented instances of physical violence. Just a year and a half into the marriage, they got divorced, and things got complicated when it came to figuring out custody of their son, Dylan, as well as what would happen with the house that they owned on at Cashel Street. And the issue of this house um, will come up again later in this investigation. Months after Angela and William divorced, Angela began dating a man named Lori Anderson. This was at a time in Angela's life when she was in a really low place, and that had kind of been a recurring theme for her since childhood. She had no money and she was living at home with her mom, but her young son, Dylan, was actually in foster care and she and William were in the middle of fighting to get him back. Angela told Lori about all these things that were going on in her life and opened up to him about her past. She said she knew she wasn't perfect, but she was really trying to turn her life around. The two dated for a few months and eventually Angela moved in with Lori and his roommate, Brian. Brian said that Angela and Lori got on together like a box of birds, which is a quote that <laughs> neither of us seem to understand. I, I do not understand that at all. I To me, that sounds like you're going to peck each other's eyes out. I don't really understand. It doesn't sound like a pleasant thing. <laughs> no, but apparently Brian means this in, in a pleasant way that they got along really well. So on the night of August 17th, Lori was called into work from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. that night because they needed someone to cover a shift. This wasn't typically the shift that Lori would work, and he was actually a little nervous about leaving Angela and Dylan home alone because he'd never left her there at night since they moved in a few months earlier. Angela was also apprehensive, and she even asked if she and Dylan could go to Lori's mom's house for the evening, but Lori ultimately said he didn't think it was a big deal for her to stay home alone for a few hours. 
But as we mentioned before, Angela was super security and safety conscious. And according to Lori, she was scared of most people, especially ones that she didn't know. At eight o'clock that night, shortly after Lori left, Angela called his mom, Mary, to check in with her. She told Mary that she was just going to stay up and watch TV while she waited for Lori to return. They talked for a few minutes, and Angela said she would call Mary back at around 9.30. At 8.15, Angela called her own mom, Pauline, to ask for directions on how to fill out a check so that she could order a pizza. She ordered from Stallone's Pizza, and when the driver showed up and told Angela what she owed, she actually shut the door and locked it while she filled out the check. She left the pay-to line blank on her check because she wasn't sure how to spell Stallone's, but she gave the driver the check and took the pizza inside. And this was around 9 p.m. At about 9.45 p.m., Lori's mom, Mary, tries to call Angela because she said she was going to call back at 9.30 and Angela hadn't called. When Mary tried calling, Angela didn't answer, which at 9.45 isn't crazy to think somebody with kids could be asleep or anyone could really be asleep. But I guess obviously if she's so nervous and she's waiting for these calls and making these calls, it, it could be a little unsettling. But it wasn't until 11.20 when Lori got home from work that Angela's body was discovered. And we're going to get right back into this case after one last break to hear word from this week's sponsors. When I get hot, my family lovingly refers to me as the Hulk. Cute nickname, I know. And that's because being hot makes me uncomfortable and irritable and ragey. That goes doubly for nighttime. When it's time to sleep, I need to keep cool to be more Bruce Banner and less Hulk. And the best way to do that is with Eucalypso Home Sheets. Eucalypso Home Sheets are made from 100% organic eucalyptus fibers and are two times softer, three times more breathable, and 10 times more sustainable than cotton sheets. Eucalypso Sheets are naturally temperature regulating and three times more breathable than your regular cotton sheets, making these sheets the most comfortable sleeping environment. They're also moisture wicking, so you can say goodbye to night sweats. I also love that they are antibacterial and hypoallergenic, which means less laundry, which is another huge bonus for me. Keeping cool at night has always been a challenge, but the designers at Eucalypso were more than happy to take it on. Not only are these sheets so comfortable and cool, but 99.9% of the materials used are recycled and reused in their production process, which not only helps protect the environment, but makes Eucalypso sheets the most eco-friendly sheets on the market. Find them at eucalyptohome.com. Go to www.eucalyptohome.com and use promo code MOMS for 10% off, plus free shipping on your entire purchase. Again, that's E-U-C-A-L-Y-P-S-O-H-O-M-E.com and use code MOMS. There's never been a better time to take care of yourself than now. Whether something in your life is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, the licensed professional therapists with BetterHelp want to help you become the best you this year. BetterHelp is professional counseling that you can do right from the comfort of your home through weekly video or phone sessions. I've used BetterHelp over the past year, and I can't tell you what a relief it is just to get all my thoughts out to a professional without ever having to leave the house. I deal with anxiety and depression and have most of my adult life. So just having someone I can talk through with these scenarios or those immediate big problems that pop up in life has been really invaluable, especially this last year. Of course, anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential. And best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional online counseling. Financial aid is also available. Whether you're struggling with family issues, sleep, stress, or more, BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash moms. Want to get away? Yeah, I do too. But since that's not really on the agenda anytime soon, I'll have to settle for a different kind of journey. And you can too, all with a fun mobile game. June's Journey allows you to enter the realm of June Parker, where an extraordinary adventure awaits. Best of all, no plane tickets needed. Say goodbye to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a world where intrigue meets elegance, courtesy of the drama-filled exploits of June Parker. Whether you're in need of a riveting mystery or simply yearning to escape the monotony of everyday life, June's Journey is your gateway to excitement. Follow June as she unravels hidden family secrets and navigates the intricate web surrounding her sister's demise. 
It's sort of like an upscale soiree minus the dull weather discussions, although we secretly enjoy those too. But hold on to your pearls as June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm deep in the fifth chapter with each section proving more enjoyable than the last. From the awe-inspiring scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect of June's Journey exudes sophistication and refinement. Don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure commence. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how Angela's boyfriend, Lori, had just come home from work at about 1120 p.m. and found Angela stabbed to death in the kitchen of their home. Investigators interviewed neighbors in the area to learn more information, and they were told that there was a small red car parked outside of Angela and Lori's house that night, very close to the time of the murder. One neighbor told the police that she heard what she thought was a possible assault, followed by a car quickly leaving sometime between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m. The pizza delivery driver also told his story to the police. They showed a photo of Angela and asked if she was the one who answered the door to get the pizza that night. And the driver said that he didn't think it was Angela, but the woman who answered the door was what he considered European in her late 20s or early 30s with brown hair to the collar and a medium build. So based on this description, the police did believe that it was Angela who answered the door. And also they used the fact that she didn't know how to spell Stallone's to fill out the check. And it was known that Angela was illiterate. So they thought, who else could it have been? She matches the physical description. And there's also this other thing. So naturally, the police talked to Lori and they confirmed his alibi that he was at work at the time this took place. They also interviewed the father of Angela's son, who was her ex-husband, William Blackmore. His alibi was that he was across town at home with his new girlfriend that night, and the police were able to determine that he was also telling the truth. Angela and Lori's roommate, Brian, also had a verifiable alibi for the night of the murder. But something police found or learned, and it's unclear what exactly it was, caused them to turn their attention in another direction, and they started to focus on the Templars MC group. The police raided the homes of the Templars MC president named Robert or Red Williams, as well as the homes of Sergeant at Arms Ross or Oscar Hesselwood and a debt collector and enforcer named David Hawken. And the headquarters for the motorcycle club was also searched. So this guy, David Hawken, he wasn't technically a member of the Templars MC. He was just an associate that owned the company Debt Collectors International, and he was the one that collected debt for the gang. But in a weird twist, David was also in the midst of, quote unquote, brokering a settlement between Angela and William Blackmore in relation to that house that they owned on Cashel Street that we mentioned earlier. This settlement was potentially worth tens of thousands of dollars. Apparently, David had given Angela and William $10,000 to help pay their mortgage, but then David fell on hard times and needed a place to stay, so he was actually living in the Cashel Street house at the time that Angela was killed. The other two men from the Templars MC, Red and Oscar, told the police that they were at a club meeting the night that Angela was killed. David Hawkins said that he was at home with his partner, and he also said that his mom, who quote-unquote hated his guts, actually called him at the same time the murder was believed to have taken place. None of these three men were ever charged with anything, but they all remained possible suspects. However, just being suspects in a murder case was really not a good thing for these three men who were involved with this gang. David said, quote, The murder turned over the underworld in Christchurch. It almost got me killed. I had every crime boss giving me crap. Everywhere the cops went, they said, This is because of David Hawken that you're getting tipped up, end quote. He said that members of the club, including Red and Oscar, were absolutely furious that he had brought them into this mess because of his association with Angela and William. He genuinely feared for his safety. So although police had a few potential avenues and motives, this case ended up going cold. And as we said, everyone they could immediately identify as a suspect had an alibi in this case. So there wasn't really much else they could do without stronger evidence. In 2013, one of the suspects in the case, Red, passed away. Six years later, in 2019, police decided to re-examine the case, and they put out a $100,000 reward for any information, and they opened a tip line, which generated more than 40 credible tips. 
The reward being offered was more than police had ever offered before. So the people were very motivated to share what they knew. Around the same time, Stuff Magazine released an investigation article titled Dark Secret. And this investigation revealed new details and the names of several new persons of interest, including none other than David Hawkins. Several months later, a new tip came in that led to the arrest of somebody completely different. It was 45-year-old Jeremy Powell and 47-year-old Rebecca Wright Meldrum. Angela's boyfriend, Lori, told the police that he did not know who those people were and had never met them before and had no idea why they would be suspects or involved in Angela's death in any way. So it was really quite shocking when Jeremy Powell readily confessed that he was the one to kill this young mother. Yeah, But it wasn't a random attack after all. According to Jeremy, he was paid $10,000 to carry out the killing, and he felt immense pressure to go through with it, despite having major reservations about it. He said that he actually had gone to Angela's house to murder her several times in the days leading up to the murder, but he kept talking himself out of it each time. But on that night, he went over to Angela's with Rebecca, and although Lori said he didn't know who these people were, Angela did know them both, so she felt comfortable letting them inside. Jeremy had on a trench coat where he hid a bat and a large knife, and once they were inside the house, he immediately started attacking Angela with the bat before stabbing her numerous times and then fleeing. After the murder, Jeremy returned to his normal life. He was also young, and he turned 21 just a few weeks later, and in photos from his birthday party, he looks happy. Nobody in his life knew that there was anything wrong or that he could have had anything to do with Angela's brutal murder. He worked in Australia for a while, and then he moved back to New Zealand and got a job working at a heating company, which is where he stayed for 10 years prior to his arrest in 2019. His employer said that he was a great employee and a great co-worker. Jeremy pleaded guilty to murder in February of 2020, and in June, he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 10 years. He actually said that he was relieved when he was finally caught, but those who had known him throughout his life were shocked to hear that he'd murdered a woman all these years ago. Since they'd known him, he'd been a great member of society and had no history of violent behavior and just all around didn't seem like the type to murder someone. Rebecca, on the other hand, completely denies having anything to do with the murder. So who was this person that contracted this killing anyway? Allegedly, it was David Hawken. In May of 2020, he was arrested and charged, but he insists that he had nothing to do with it. He still says that his mom called him and uh, his mom did not like him. So, you know, this gives him a cast iron alibi. He said, quote, I didn't kill her. That's been proven. We got hauled over the coals and that's a fact. I've got nothing to hide. My conscience is clear. If I ever found out who did it, God help them, end quote. I feel like if you're trying to say you didn't commit murder, it's probably good not to threaten people. (laughs) In your quote. So David and Rebecca both pleaded not guilty in the murder and their trials are scheduled for the end of this year. What in the world is happening with this story? Yeah, and that is really where the story ends. And it still leaves a lot to be desired as far as a conclusion because I still don't understand why, even if David Hawkins did hire them to carry out this killing, why? There's just no... I mean, I understand he was living in the house that was owned by Angela and William. Um, I just can't imagine a reason what the actual motivation would be, because obviously Angela did not have money. As we said, she did not grow up with a very a good life, you know, and she didn't have a lot. And so what exactly was there to be gained by killing her? If that's the real story, it still doesn't make any sense. I have so many questions and I'm not even sure that I necessarily believe that that's what happened? I don't know. This one is really confusing to me because you kind of get like there are a lot of people in the story that you're like, mm, well, I can see how they would have a motive or the, how that person would. But then it's like, whoa, like then you just get these this random guy who just admits that he did this, but and says that he was hired. But I still have so many questions. So many. But yeah. And crazier things have happened than people uh, admitting to killing people without even being provoked. Like, uh, gosh, why can I never remember the guy who he's been at Crime Crown before, his friend said that they committed a murder, said, I dreamed this murder and we did it. And he ended up going to jail for however long and he had nothing to do with it. We don't know what happened in this case. It's still, you know, going through the court system and everything. But it is, it always makes me nervous when somebody just out of nowhere says, hey, I I did this thing. Um, 
And then everyone else is like, I don't think they did it. I didn't have anything to do with it either. It's just really a crazy, crazy story. But it makes sense that it could have been somebody that she knew. But to me, it sounds like it's somebody that she knew had that small window. That's just a three-hour window. They didn't take anything from her. They didn't hurt her child. They didn't sexually assault her. But they knew that she was going to be by herself for three hours. That's such a tiny window of time to be able to do something like this in. You know, it, I don't know. There, it, there has to be I a mean, connection he to did. Her. Right. And he did say that he had gone there a few times before, you know, so who knows if he was just kind of staying and waiting and watching. But, um, you know, and they did say that the ex-husband, William, had an alibi that they were able to prove that he was across town, you know, at home with his new girlfriend. Um, But I would be more I would be more curious about that, which I thought it was interesting. There wasn't more mention of him because out of everybody in the story, I feel like, you know, they're going through this custody thing with their son. Right. That would be where I would look for a motive. And it seems like he is not even in, it's not even a question. You know, he's not the one going to trial this year. So definitely interesting. And it will be interesting to see kind of what happens in this case when yeah, it goes to trial. Definitely want to follow it. Yeah. So those were our two New Zealand stories for this week. Um, we hope you enjoyed those. And we do have a fun last thing before we go this week that I'm really excited about. We've done this before. I think we did it when we had a case from Ireland yeah. where we said, yeah, so we told each other some phrases, um, you know, that are from that country. And we decided that we were going to guess what they meant um, in our Mandy and Melissa way. So we both have some phrases and we're going to say them to each other. And then we're going to guess what we think it means um, to us in United States English. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. You know what I learned? I just started watching The Amazing Race with my daughter and the host. And I figured this out after four episodes had an accent and I looked him up on Wikipedia and it's a New Zealand accent. So it wasn't even like that far off. Like I just think if your accent, I can't even notice you have an accent for four episodes, then right. I was just so confused. I'm like, do, do we sound like we're from New Zealand? I don't understand anymore. I was so, <laughs> I felt stupid even Googling it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's from New Zealand. Okay. I am hearing something. I'm not totally crazy. So that's all I really know about New Zealand, that and Kiwis. So I'm excited to see what we have today. So Mandy, I'm going to give you the first one. The first one okay. is just pop into the dairy. Do you know what it means to say you're just popping to the dairy? Um, I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm going to say you're just going up to the store, like to the corner Perfect. store. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. You are going, yeah. literally one of the things says you're going to the corner store or going to the convenience store. Any use of the word dairy is basically what you're doing. Oh, nice. Very good. I mean, I, I rarely buy dairy at the convenience store, but yes. It's <laughs> not my first stop, but I guess I'll do it if I, if I have to. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So here's one for you. Um, that fella is munted. That fella is munted. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that fella is munted. He's angry. Um, possibly, but no, it means he is drunk. <laughs> oh, he's angry and drunk. <laughs> he's munted. Okay. That's interesting. Definitely have not heard that one. I like this one. You ready? Mandy. Uh-huh. I'm going to say it like it's written. Rattle your dags. and I go up with inflection so you can hear you can really hear it rattle your dags I want to say this has something to do with like dancing I think I say dairy again I was gonna say you have to put that aside we've already done dairy (laughs) it doesn't it means to hurry up but here's the gross thing the dags are part of this the fleece that's around a sheep's butt and it's normally caked yeah. in poo, and it rattles when the sheep run. So rattle your dags. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that at all. I know that's not one I'm going to bring in. I deal with enough poop no. in my life. Okay. This one is funny, and I don't think you're going to guess it, but we're going to try anyway. Okay. So pass me the chutty. Wait, I'm sorry. Pass me a what? <laughs> pass me the chutty. Chutty? Chuddy. <laughs> Chuddy. Okay. I heard something slightly different there. I really didn't want it to be that. Okay. Pass me the chuddy. Um, pass me the um pass me the the plate. <laughs> no. Pa- pass me the chewing gum. Okay. I could use that one. Oh, but I don't want to do chewing gum if it's called chuddy. <laughs> Ew. That's ruining it for me. <laughs> I know. I don't get it. 
All right, I've got I've got two more. Okay, Mandy, um, wop wops, um, the wop wops. Wait, wait, why am I trying to say a sentence with just the in front of it? it looks like we're out in the wop wops. Uh, I I'm gonna say it's like the equivalent of saying that like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yes, you are correct. Good job. I like that Perfect. one. Wop wops. It's better than the <laughs> initial thing. You know what I'm saying? That starts with a B and ends with an E and there's another letter in the middle. That's what it reminds me of. But it's a cleaner yeah. version. Yeah. Okay. So here's one. Um, <laughs> I'm going to use my own name in this example. Uh, Mandy is packing a sad. Packing a sad? <laughs> oh, I don't know, but I want to use this. I don't even care what it's for. Um, packing a sad. Um I mean, I guess I would say you're, wait, how about you're packing an umbrella because it's sad when it rains. <laughs> <laughs> this one is pretty literal. It just means um, that you're, the person is upset or sad. Dang it, why did I so, go with obvious? That's so good. I love that. I like that. I know. I like that. I'm going to, I like being able to have the idea of using that, that I'm packing a sad. I feel like if you said, Melissa, are you packing a sad? It would cheer me up immediately. <laughs> I would feel better. I love that one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. here's my last one. Uh, which one do I want to do? Yeah, I'll do this one. Okay. I'm going to say it just like this. It was choice, bro. I'm, it, was, it was really good. It was awesome. Dang it, you're really good at this. Apparently, you know a lot about <laughs> New Zealand. Yeah, so, but I just. I feel like that one is one that, like, my kids would say. I would hear my boys saying that. And they're watching New Zealander YouTube videos or. It's very possible. Yeah, yeah. or Amazing Race. <laughs> I don't know if they said it on there. Yeah, no, I like I like that one. I think wop wops I would use, and I like Mandy's. Is it carrying her sad? No, that's depressing. It, packing a sad. Okay, I like that. <laughs> packing somehow is better than carrying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have one last one. Okay, and we're gonna use we're gonna use your name this time, but it's it is not true of you. But we're gonna use it. Okay, anyway. well then this feels <laughs> aggressive right off the bat. Right off the bat. Okay. All right, here you go. That Melissa really spins all the yarn. Oh my gosh, I'm like so upset my name was involved. There's like a billion <laughs> names in this world and to immediately go for mine is upsetting. Okay, I'm going to say, what is not me? I'm going to say nice. Um, <laughs> you dig on me, I dig on myself harder. Spins, on the, spins all the yarn. Yeah, spins all the yarn. I mean, do I just spend a lot of money? <laughs> no. So it means that you tell stories that aren't necessarily Mandy. true. <laughs> I said it's not true of you. Yeah, I should have been packing sads. That is true of me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do not spin all the Oh yarn. my gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to live this down. I barely pack <laughs> yarns to my kids and I only do that about holiday related things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So those are awesome and funny. And I love, I love learning about news uh, sayings that are said in other places because they are kind of silly and um, they, to us, they're silly to us because we don't, that's not the we say a that bunch we use, of stupid but, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We have our own stupid things that we say. Um, maybe we'll have to do that one time. We'll have to do some stupid American phrases yeah. that like are, are so just like off the wall and ridiculous that we hear all the time. Um, so that was it for this week, guys. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, our first time, I think, visiting New Zealand to talk about any cases over there. But like I said, New Zealand is so lovely and not a lot happens there. Oh, in the crime my gosh. Sense. Second, yeah, second safest country in the entire world. Like, is it after gosh. Iceland? Because I feel like that one was yes. pretty safe. It was after Iceland. Oh, yes. okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds lovely. And we're very happy that you guys don't have more stories coming out of there for us to talk about. Yes. <laughs> there you go. All right. So that was it for this week. We will see you guys back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Hey guys, Melissa from Moms and Murder here, inviting you to check out my new show, Criminality, where I'll be taking a look at crime and reality TV with my co-host, Rebecca Sebastian. Hi friends. I'm Rebecca, host of Dialogue, a true crime conversation. 
face it, we all love to hate reality TV because what's better than escaping your dumpster fire of a life than watching someone else's? Join us as we discuss everything from a tea mom with feathers in her hair to a 90-day fiance who enjoys a box of matches, and we may just call Nancy Joe while wearing our best pair of little brown BB shoes that only cost $29. And we can't forget the true crimes of the real housewives. Guys, they all have mugshots. That's where I'll be lending my expertise. We'll break it all down for you every other Friday beginning February 12th, 2021. So go to criminalityshow.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Criminality, because loving reality isn't a crime. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.